I've been asked to speak on the subject, the gathered church, one of the two great historical sacred rhythms of the church. And so we're going to focus on the gathered church. And I've taken a text out of Hebrews to be the text that we take a look at this idea, this concept of the gathering. So I'll begin reading there in Hebrews chapter 10, then we'll pray and we'll begin to unpack this idea of the gathered church. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Verse 32. But recall the former days when you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partnered with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Let's pray. Father, I pray that every viewer, everyone viewing this message, wherever they're at, in their living room or somewhere else, that you would speak to them and you would show yourself to them in Jesus' name. Amen. There's not a more pertinent subject to discuss in the church today than the gathered church. In light of the COVID epidemic, church buildings all over the world have been abandoned. I'm standing in the middle of our small secondary auditorium in our huge church here in Brentwood, Tennessee. And you'll notice the pews are empty. The reason is because of the global pandemic and social distancing and physical distancing and trying to create an environment that is safe. Governments have emptied buildings all over the world. In light of this, Churches all over the world have had to employ technology, many of them for the first time. And so Zoom has become very popular. And so the question I'm being asked all over the world, is the Zoom room going to replace the building room? Are we going to be able to turn the church into viewers versus seers? Or are we going to view a few on the screen versus seeing people in a building? Another question I'm asked, can we turn viewership into discipleship? And so what is the future for the physical gathering and buildings in light of technology? And that is a great question. On the surface, that seems like a technical question, but that actually is a historical question. It's a biblical question. It's an ecclesiological question. It's a missiological question. And it is an institutional question. It's a sociological question. And so from the surface, that seems really technical. But to understand this, we've got to get a definition and an understanding of what the gathered church is. And to do that, we're going to have to zoom back thousands of years. In fact, we're going to go to the beginning of the story in the Bible of the creation. The creation narrative is this, that God created the heavens and the earth, and then he created a man and a woman in his image. And he put them in a garden where he would 
fellowship with them. And he put a tree in the middle of that garden alongside another tree. One was the tree of life and the other tree was the tree of death. And he said, do not eat of this tree, this one tree. You can eat of any tree in this whole garden, but not this tree. And man and woman did exactly what God told them not to do. And they ate of the tree. They sinned against God and it shattered the human condition. And standing next to them was Satan. And so the, the great sin, the fall of mankind, the thing that began human deflourishing in the garden was both spiritual and it involved mankind. Two individuals rebelling against one rule that God had established in the garden. Zoom forward a little bit and you see that as humanity developed, all they could really do was be evil. And so God brought about the great flood and, and we all know about Noah's ark and he came with Noah. And that's when we see that society, not just individuals, societies institutionalize evil, thus seen in the Tower of Babel. So God set out to rescue mankind in what they had done. And he decided the way that he would do that is he would choose a man named Abraham. And through his lineage, as Abraham and Sarah gave birth to children, through that lineage, he would birth a nation. And in that nation, he would come to that nation and install himself into that nation and reveal himself to that nation. And he would create a people that he would call his own the people of God, people that he chose. And those people were to become people that understood the horror of sin, the horror of what happens when humanity rejects God. And those people would begin to understand what it took to restore them to a relationship with God and look forward to God's ultimate dealings with the sin of mankind. And so the way he did that is he had them build a temple and installed this idea of the gathering. And so at the temple, we're going to zoom forward a long time. It's Solomon and it's Zerubbabel and they built these temples. And so temple worship, the gathering, happened only three times a year. To go to church in that day, it took an awful lot of work. And in those temple services, in those gatherings, the whole nation of Israel would have to come to one place, but they would have to come prepared. You couldn't just show up to church. You had to show up with a lamb, a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb, the best lamb. And the reason is because that lamb, the very first thing that you did when you, quote unquote, walked into the church is you saw this gigantic brazen altar this laver because you couldn't come into the presence of God without paying for sin. But it couldn't just be any kind of a payment. It had to be a very narrow, very specific payment. It had to be a perfect payment. And so the image God did because he's this masterful artist. He's, he, he said, okay, blood has to be shed that's how serious he is. Life has to be taken because the result of sin is actually death. And so you would take this perfect lamb and you had to inspect this lamb. Before you came, you inspected it because God wouldn't accept an imperfect lamb. 
You couldn't bring the scrub lamb. You had to bring the best. And when you came to worship, you brought this lamb after he had been thoroughly inspected. And they inspected the lamb and they said, okay. And then they would slash the lamb's throat. It was brutal. It was terrible. And this sacrifice for your sins as a family would take place. And for that moment, the wrath of God that was stored up because of his anger at rebelling against God and how dehumanizing and destructive that was and the evil was appeased. The wrath was appeased, but it was only temporary. So three times a year, you had to work on this lamb and and think about this lamb. He had to be perfect. And everything in that temple was pointing forward to a day that there would be a lamb that would come that would no longer require repeated killings of these perfect lambs. But this coming lamb was going to be inspected. And he was going to be found to be perfect. And so you came to the gathering and you inspected this lamb. And you began to realize that that the, the cost of sin is death. Blood has to be shed. And someone has to come that is perfect. And that perfect one has to die. And they have to shed their blood. And then they were told that there would be a coming Messiah called the Lamb of God. And He would come. And this man would be perfect. And He would be inspected over and over and over. And this Lamb would be found faultless. He would be found perfect. He would be found guiltless. And when Jesus Christ was born and He came as the Lamb, He was inspected. He was absolutely inspected. In fact, his final inspection was by Pilate. And after all of these inspections, Pilate, after he had inspected him and he, Jesus stood before the court, Pilate found him not guilty again. He was not guilty. He was inspected and he was spotless. And Pilate washed his hands and said, Hey, this man is innocent. He is totally innocent. And so you can imagine as a Hebrew coming to the gathering and every image in that gathering was pointing to this future Messiah. Even the priest that would go in to make his sacrifices to God and he would do his ritual thing in the Holy of Holies where God would appear. If he wasn't perfect, he was killed. And so the priest had to be perfect. He had to do everything perfect. And that was a symbol of the priest that would come in Jesus Christ, the perfect priest, because he would be the perfect one that would bring us before God and he would be our intercessor. And so everything pointed to the coming of Jesus. The gathering in the Old Testament was to be a witness and it was a, missiologists call it a centripetal vision of God or mission of God. In other words, he told Israel this, You come to the gathering and you worship me and I will bring the nations to you. It's a come and see. Come and see, come and see. As you worship, as you become a people, you will know the cost of sin. You will know what sin is. You will know how to get to God through sacrifices. You will know what it means to walk away from God. You will understand evil as a nation like no other nation in the world will understand evil. You will know God like no nation in the world will know God. And if you will gather 
the public witness of you gathering, I will bring the nations to the light of Israel. And we all know, if you know your history, that Israel messed up all the time. And so they came three times a year. Enter Jesus Christ. So imagine as a Jew, you went to the temple. In fact, some of your, some of your things you did in your home, your rituals, the whole culture was pointing to Jesus. They had a feast where they would sit at the table and they would eat. And then at a certain time, the eldest son would stand up and go open the door and so say, Messiah, are you coming? Have you come yet? Teaching the entire nation to constantly be looking for the coming of Messiah. So you can imagine how prepared that nation was for the coming of Messiah. And so when Jesus came, it is shocking that they missed who he was, that they missed it. Now, Jesus decided to change the gathering. And that's where we enter this passage of Scripture. Jesus came. Jesus was born. He lived a perfect life, just like the Lamb. He lived a perfect life. He was inspected over and over and over again. And if you're viewing right now, and you've never inspected Jesus to see if he was the one that lived a perfect life, you can. He can be inspected. There's lots written about him. I challenge you to inspect him. But he came and he actually lived a perfect life. And when he died, the, the Hebrews were shocked, but they shouldn't have been shocked because the lamb died. That was a picture of what Jesus would do. He would give his blood and he was the perfect sacrifice. And the gathering, the gathering pressed those images deep into the psyche and soul and the culture of the Hebrew world. But Jesus was rejected by the Hebrews. And so Jesus came and he died and on the third day he was resurrected from the dead, proving that he was God. And all of that was predicted in the Old Testament. All of that was prophesied by Hebrew, the Hebrew prophets of old. And the gathering was the place that those images and those truths were formed and framed. When Jesus came, he fulfilled all of that temple worship. So he said, this is a sea change moment in the gathering. And remember, our question is, what about the gathering? Are we at another place in human history where this is going to be a sea change moment for the church? So Jesus said, I'm going to change the gathering. You need no sacrifice anymore because I was the perfect sacrifice. He said, you don't need to do all these rituals because I am the perfect priest. You don't need the Old Testament prophets. I'm the perfect prophet. I fulfilled the law. You don't need to talk about the law. You no longer need to circumcise yourself. I will circumcise your heart. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. And he came and he said that. And then he died. And then when he was risen from the dead, he said during his day, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He instituted another ancient rhythm and changed the rhythm of the gathering. He turned the gathering from sacrifice into celebration. He turned the gathering from being in a temple to being ubiquitous in every neighborhood throughout the world. He changed the gathering from just being a come and see centripetal mission to a centripetal mission of celebrating and centripetal 
huge omission of going into all the world and preaching the gospel and taking the gospel to the world. Now, if you were a Hebrew in 80 AD and you heard the message of Jesus Christ, think of what was there. You heard, wow, all of my life has been oriented. All of my culture has been oriented to this coming one, this Messiah. And when Jesus came, he said, I'm him. And after he died, the apostles preached, that is the one. Jesus is the one. In the Old Testament gathering, they looked forward. The New Testament gathering was a looking backward at what Jesus had done. And so imagine the Hebrews. And so many Hebrews said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. And all of a sudden, their entire life made sense. It became a profound thing for them. And they said, Jesus is Lord. But then they stepped out of the house church that they were in, or they stepped out of the synagogue, the Christian meeting that was held in the synagogue, and they entered a society and their family said, Jesus is not Lord. Jesus is not the Messiah. And the Pharisees said, Jesus is not the Messiah. And the Romans said, Jesus is not Lord, Caesar is Lord. And the Greeks said, Jesus is one of our gods, but one of many gods. And so everywhere they went, every advertisement of the culture outside of the Hebrew world was saying, what you're saying is wrong. Now, we read this passage and we know that these Hebrews paid a tremendous price to say Jesus is the Messiah. We read about that price. He said, many of you have suffered greatly because you have had this confession of hope. Many of you have suffered in light of that. Many of you, were, your friends were put in prison that were there in your local church. They were put in prison. And you went and stood by them instead of hiding. You stood by them and they came and confiscated your property and instead of just being resigned to them confiscating your property you rejoice that your property was because Jesus was your Messiah he was your Messiah but something happened to many of those Hebrews they begin to turn and walk away from that confession enter this passage enter this scripture the whole of the book of Hebrews is written and the whole thing begins by saying Jesus is better than all that stuff in the Old Testament. He's a better priest. He's a better sacrifice. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than everything. He's better than the angels. Jesus is better. Jesus is Lord. And in those local congregations, in those local congregations, the gathering shifted. Now, to understand the church, because this is a sea change moment, you have to understand what the word church means, ecclesia. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he was using that term meaning the mystical, unseen, universal church. But the vast majority of the New Testament uses it in another way. They use it in a local, political, corporate, institutional way. Meaning that the gathering now is a gathering with a politic. In other words, there's leadership there. There's baptisms that take place. And they decide who gets to be baptized. 
Those communities were local theologizing communities and they still are today. In other words, back in that day, nobody had a Bible. No one carried a Bible. No one carried scrolls. And so the only way that you knew what was in Scripture as you came to the gathering. And at the gathering, you worked on your confession of hope. Remember, the Scripture says in the 24th verse, it says, hold fast to your confession of hope. You see, the local gathering became a confessing assembly. Say that out loud. Say confessing assembly. Now let's take a look and think about what a confession is. A confession, first of all, is a group of people. A group of people. You don't have a confession unless there's a group of people. It's just your opinion. But this was a confession of hope, meaning that local church stood around and those Hebrews would come in and sit down and they would say, my neighbors, my friends, my family, my mate, everybody's saying Jesus is not Lord. And they would go, no, remember, we confess Jesus is Lord. In fact, that, those three words... Jesus is Lord is the most redacted ancient Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so when they would come to the gathering, that helped them hold fast or hang on to or grab that confession of hope because all of the confessions out in society were angled against their single confession of hope that Jesus is Lord. In other words, when you walked out of that building, every Instagram message, every pop-up on your Facebook, every billboard, every te- television advertisement, every TV program, the culture was arrayed against the idea that Jesus is Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord, that is cataclysmic. That means nothing else is Lord. That means you're not Lord of your own life. That means nobody is Lord. That means Jesus is Lord. And that was a confession of hope. That idea of confession came from the gathering. You are not a confessor if you are not connected to a local body. This is the reason why. Because the local body, the ecclesia, the institutional, the politic church, part of their job is theologizing. And so part of their job is to to decide what they believe. And then when aberrant truths or other truths or truths that are not aberrant but just not what they believe come through, that's where the sermons come from. That's where the collective agreement comes from. And these local confessions that still happen to this day, much of my job is helping the churches navigate confession. So local leaders have to be clear, they have to have charity, and they have to have unity in their preaching of theology. And that's their confession of hope. When I come to a church service, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of my life. And when I walk into the building and we begin to sing, we're beginning to sing about Jesus being Lord. And my confession of hope is being clarified in the midst of the congregation. And we're singing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord because we're confessing out loud. It's out loud. And when the sermon happens, it's an out loud confession. And hopefully the out loud confession in my soul, in my head, is much more loud than all the confessions of all the hope that the world has to offer. And so these Hebrews came to the gathering, and when they gathered, they began to work on and remember their confession of hope. This word confession 
men a lot back in those days. The confessors were people who actually confessed that Jesus was Lord. If you said that, the Jews hated you, the Romans hated you, the Greeks hated you, everybody hated you. So when you said Jesus was Lord, you paid a dear price for that. And those who were martyred that would not uh, devour their confession of hope, they were called confessors. The most famous early confessors are Petipatua and Felicitas and three other teenagers. When Septimus Severus came to power in 200 AD, he was the first African Caesar of Rome. He decided to quash out Christianity. He wanted to eliminate the confessors. The confessors were the group of people that would gather. Because he knew those gathered folks, oh my goodness, those gathered folks, they had their confession well worked out. That, that, the problem in Rome was that gathering. He didn't care about the scattered church. He cared about the gathered church. Because that's where they knew what they were doing. And whatever, whatever lies the government would uh, propagate, they would come to that gathering on Sunday and they would deal with that and they would theologize and they would clarify and their confession of hope would be restored and they would see the believers around them and they would walk out as confessors and Petipatua and Felicitas and three others were marched into the Colosseum in Carthage in Africa. And because they wouldn't disavow their confession of hope. As catechumens, they were brand new Christians. They were in the baptism class, learning what Jesus is Lord actually meant before they were baptized. They weren't even members yet. But because of the local gathered church, the institution of church that breaks the power of disintegrating sin, this institutional church, because of that, they would not disavow that Jesus was Lord. And they were martyred in front of thousands and thousands of people. And they became very famous. Still to this day, they're talked about, I'm talking about them. And that's because of their confession of hope. If we're asking the question, will Zoom replace the gathering? First of all, a gathered assembly is a confessing assembly. So if Zoom is to replace that, the question is, can Zoom replace the dynamic that happens when the room is filled with confessors singing and shouting and listening to and amening their confession of hope. The gathering is a gathering of, of confessors. It's an assembly. The second thing is it says consider. Consider how to spur one another on to love and to good works. So apparently what happened is not only were these Hebrew believers shaken in their confession, but they ceased to do love and to good works, presupposing that love and good works is something that you have to build a strategy about. You see, many people think the corporate church is a bad word. They think sitting down and thinking through how to transform that society with love and good, good meaning attractive works, is some kind of a business idea. That's not a business idea. For thousands of years, our job is to sit in rooms and look at the society around us, regardless of the price we're going to pay for serving that world, and we're to spur one another on with love and to good works, and we're to consider that. So a gathered place is a place where people come that have considered strategically how to do love and good works out 
in the community around them. It's a considered assembly. And finally this. He says, and don't abandon one another or forsake one another in the assembling of yourselves as some have the habit of doing, but encourage one another as long as it is called today and much more as you see that day approaching. So the last thing that the gathering is, is it's an assembly of consistent people, people that come consistently to the assembly. Not legalistically, but consistently. Because they understand the encouraging role of what the gathering is supposed to be like. I know for me, when I first came to a church and I walked in, there was a sense of awe. And awe is a a combination word of awful and awesome. And you'll read about the awe of God. You can can sense the awfulness of God because of His pure holiness and the awesomeness of God in a body of believers. And I remember walking in and these consistent people that were there that would consistently get me and encourage me. And I would be encouraged when I walk in because where I worked, there was no, no sense of God everywhere. Everything they said was, had nothing to do with Jesus. And I was working to share Jesus with them in the world. And so, so the gathered church is simply this. It's a collective of people that come together officially on a Sunday morning or a Saturday or Friday in the Muslim world, whenever you gather. But the rhythm of gathering This great historical sacred rhythm of gathering is rooted in history. And when I come to the gathering, something deep happens in me. I have a longing to see people. Paul said he had a longing to see those people. The gathering is a place of your spiritual family and you long to go there. And when I get there, the songwriters have been very careful so that when they craft a song, it is a song that clarifies my confession of hope. It clarifies the fact that Jesus is Lord. It holds him up as Jesus is Lord. And all of the images and pictures and all of the other lords that society pumps in, that is wiped away. And I am in the assembly of the confessors. The very word assembly. Do not neglect the assembling of yourself together. That word assembly means the whole collection is there. It's like a chess set. is not assembled unless all the parts are there. And so if the question is, if the gathering is compromised because of technology. Well, obviously, I think you understand what I think. I don't think we're at a sea change moment in the church today. But I think you need to ask yourself the question. I think this is a great tool. I think we're going to use technology in a great way. In fact, I probably use technology more than all of you viewing this. I spend hours and hours and hours. It's Zoom now, but it was Viber. It was WhatsApp. It was all kinds of things. It was Google Hangouts. It was a lot of other things. But I think the the place that we're at today is that churches will fill back up with throngs of people all over the world because their confession of hope is at stake. And that's what was at stake 
with these Hebrews. And he essentially verbally grabbed them by the shirt and he said, hold fast to your confession of hope. Get back in the assembly. Get back to where they're going to spur you on to love and to good works. And that's the reason for the gathered church. So when we talk about the gathered church, that is the gathered church. Let me pray with you for a moment. Father, I pray that every person viewing this would first of all Jesus, they would consider in their life if you are Lord. Jesus, they would look at that first. Jesus, they would inspect you. Jesus, they would try to understand the great horror of human sin and that they themselves have created and have, have been sinners and that you came to redeem that. You were the perfect lamb. You are the sacrifice. You did that for them. You lived the life we should have lived. You died the death that we should have died. And you were raised on the third day. And that proved that you were the Son of God. And if we will believe in that, as your word says, to believe in Jesus and confess with our mouth that you're Lord, that you'll forgive us of our sins, and you will help us to turn from our wickedness and turn towards you in righteous living. And secondly, Jesus, I pray that we would leave with a greater understanding of the gathering and the great historical place that that is and why the gathering is no, so necessary long before the scattering. It's the gathering. In Jesus' name, amen.